This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Have you ever had that kind of that grand idea that you want to do, but you just kind of either keep putting it off or you're not able to complete it? Probably many of you have had that experience at one time or another in your life. New York Times reporter and assignment editor Phyllis Corky tackles the problem in her book, The Big Thing, how to complete your creative project, even if you're a lazy, self-doubting procrastinator like me. And she talks about not only completing these tasks, but also learning from the successes and failures along the way. And Phyllis joins us right now. Phyllis, welcome. Thank you. Uh, I got to say, uh, to be honest, right at the outset, in all the interviews I've done, I've never interviewed somebody that has described herself in this manner or himself in this manner uh, as part of the title of the book. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a pretty out there, honest uh, t- uh, subtitle, isn't it? It is. Uh, so, I mean, this was your big thing, right? Writing this book. The book itself is a very meta book. It's a book about creative projects, and my creative project is this book. And and what were what were the things that you learned about yourself in the process of doing this book? Well, as I explained in the book, uh, the, the idea for it came when I was writing a column in my job at the Times about deadlines. And I said in the column, which was also kind of a meta column, that the only reason I finished it was because I had a deadline and I was yeah. accountable to my coworkers and I would have endangered my reputation if I hadn't finished it. So I thought to myself, how do we give that same sense of urgency to our own personal creative projects that no one else is asking for? And I explore that in the book. Uh, and, and doing this book now and, and having it out, uh, having it out, has it has it changed your philosophy on your work at the New York Times? Yes, I think it's made my voice, it's opened up my voice a little more and made it a little more personal. I think mm-hmm. my writing has gotten a little more personal, so I don't know if that's good or bad, but it has had that effect, I think. You say that, that, that in, in the early parts of the book that you are not a kind of a self-help guru. So then what do you want people to, to kind of take from this book and maybe a little bit more of an understanding of what, what you went through and maybe how that could relate to, to their own situations? Exactly. I just want to, the reason I say I'm not a self-help guru is because I feel like I'm suffering just the way most people are. And I feel like I have gone through a lot of failures. And as I say right up front, I'm very lazy. And there's all of this sort of self-help religion out there or inspirational kind of material that says you have to get up every day and you have to have discipline and you have to work every single day and without fail on your project. And I would sometimes say to myself, I need to get up and do this, and then I just stay under the covers and read a mystery or play with my cat instead. And so I I just, and I thought, because I'm that kind of person, I'm not capable of doing a big project. Well, it turns out it's not true. You can be lazy sometimes. You can maybe not get up on one particular morning or two particular mornings. But if you get up on that third morning and if you get up enough, you uh, increments add up and you can finish it. We're talking with Phyllis uh, Corky, whose uh, book is The Big Thing, 
uh, how to complete your your creative project, even if you're a lazy, self-doubting procrastinator like me, you're more than welcome to jump in and uh, ask a question or give a comment at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. In going through this, there were were certain times where... I saw a word or a phrase that that I kind of latched onto, and and one kind of as basic as anything is, is the word love, and a lot oh. of a lot of what people do with their projects ends up being a labor of love. Yes, I do. I have a whole chapter on love and work, and I talk about well, Freud is the one who was reported to have said that the most important things in our life. To, for us to feel fulfilled, our, our love and work. And I call them our two psychic tent poles, kind of. Yeah. But it's very rare for, I think, a person to have complete success for, or fulfillment in both areas. And so we sort of put our psychic energy into one or the other. And if it's a creative project, it does. We talk about a passion project. We, you know, as you say, a labor of love. Yeah. We talk about our book as being like our baby. Very true. Well, and you also talk about about drive being another thing, because as you said, you know, you can work a couple of days and then maybe take a day off, but you still have to have that drive to be able to kind of push it, push the project through. Yes. And I one thing I think that uh, is important for this kind of project is for it to be intrinsically motivated. I make a distinction between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation, okay. where it's something that really fulfills a deep creative spiritual or intellectual need. And it's not driven by the need to be famous or get rich or get a lot of followers on social media. That shouldn't, that shouldn't be the main motivation for that. No. That's not going to carry you through to the end. How often, and this is kind of not a specific, I need a number question, but how often do you think that that, that big thing that somebody is dealing with has nothing to do with their daytime job? I mean, it's, it's oh. something totally off, off the radar. You know, I don't, I don't know percentages on that, but I do talk about some people in the book who need to have a job that's completely different. For example, the composer, Philip Glass, before he was able to afford to work full-time on his music, he drove cabs. Right. <laughs> and uh, he was able to make enough uh, working part-time as a cab driver to really devote all his mental energy to his, uh, to his music. I talked to another person who's a janitor full-time, and he likes that that doesn't tax him too much intellectually, and he can work on, he's founded this museum devoted to the works of his late father. So you can have somebody that's the, that's running a, a, a Fortune 500 company and somebody, as you just said, who is a janitor, and they can realistically get gain the same benefits from completing a big thing, but they're in totally different worlds. Yes, I think it's, it doesn't matter who you are, what walk of life you're in, a certain segment of the population has this yearning to do it. Not everyone, and, and that's okay, but if you right. do have it, it doesn't matter, matter what your income level or your job is. There, there were two, uh, a couple other pieces that I, I, I really uh, went back and read a couple of times over, uh, and they're not what you would consider to be the normal thought process in terms of completing a project, but one of which is you talk a little bit about maybe with your own situation is health and yes. and making sure that that you are taking care of your body and you're not either overdoing it or underdoing it when you're when you're in the process of completing a project yes well one thing that worked for me to get mine done was i got a book contract and well, which, that helps yeah. but the thing that happened then was i got horribly anxious and i got 
stomach pains and back pains. And I ran to my doctor and I said, will you please, please give me some Klonopin so I can relax. And she refused. She said, oh, it's addictive. And so I was forced to seek natural uh, answers to it. So I actually took breathing lessons, believe it or not. I paid $350 to get a lesson in breathing. Wow. And it really helped. And, and what she told me made a lot of sense. She said, when you, because I was breathing very shallowly, I was breathing vertically, I was breathing from the top of my body where there are barely any lungs. And that was limiting the flow of oxygen to my brain. And you need oxygen in your brain to think clearly and creatively. You can apply this at work, too, if you get really stressed out sure. at work. Just breathe from the middle of your body so you use your diaphragm and breathe uh, uh, horizontally rather than uh, vertically. You also talk in the book about nutrition as well in yes. terms of, in terms of the type of stuff that you're eating. And obviously for a lot of people, nutrition just in general is more of a concern. But I guess when you get into, uh, you know, doing a project uh, outside of your uh, outside of your work, I bet a lot of people will be like, oh, I'm just going to run through McDonald's. I'm going to run through Wendy's because I need to get a quick bite and get back to my project. Yeah, you need to have protein to work on a project. I was eating these big cinnamon rolls that I got on the stand on the way to work. Oh, yeah, that won't work. That gives you a huge rush and then plummets. You plummet and you you can't think straight. And this nutrition expert I talked to said it's really good just to have protein for breakfast, eggs, or even like a can of salmon or something like that. And Mm. again, for lunch, have more emphasize the protein. And then she actually said carbohydrates are fine for dinner because it helps you sleep. And I have a whole chapter on sleep in my book, too, and how important that is. Well, and I was going to bring that up because sleep is, is such a vital thing. And so many of us these days are, are, are going faster and faster. I know I am with doing this show and I've got three kids and, you know, oh. getting sleep is, is, is a hard thing at times. Yet you do need it. And it, it, it's understated how important that actually is to allow your body to kind of recoup a little bit. Yes, and it's part of my whole thing. I have this sort of Zen saying in my book, to do is to undo, and to do is to not do. And part of the not doing is the sleeping, because it's, it's, it rejuvenates and it recalibrates and it resets everything. And we all know that. It's almost a cliche. We come up with our best ideas in the shower, and that's because yeah, that's right. we've had a chance to, to rest and our neurons and our brains have had a chance to, to do all this other backroom kind of stuff that we have no idea what it is, but then suddenly it emerges to the surface and gives us these great new ideas. The, 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 the idea of doing a project, and, and going back to something I said before, uh, when you have a day job and that project may not be linked to your day job, uh, that's a balance, I, and I would be interested to see how you did it, and I'm sure a lot of the people you interviewed uh, talked about it as well, is it, it's it's got to be an unbelievable balancing act to be able to pull these two things off at once and not have kind of everything come down around you. That's true, and that's what made me realize is that uh, talking to an expert on willpower, we uh, there's been research done on willpower. Obviously, you need willpower to do your job, and you needed to work on this project. And the research has shown that we have a limited amount, and we use it on any number of tasks. So what I realized fairly soon, and I think everybody needs to realize if they're going to do this balancing act, mm-hmm. is that if you have a really rough day at work and a lot of things going on and you know, have to work a long day and are really stressed out, don't expect yourself to be also able to work on your project. 
uh, and forgive yourself. You know, that's one thing. I'm, I'm really hard on myself, and I would get, I would just, you know, beat on myself if I didn't come home and work on the book. But then I would realize, hey, I had a rough day at work today. I just need to relax. And then at the other, on the other end of the spectrum, recognize something. We all have days at work that aren't as bad. Mm-hmm. You know, we might be doing something a little lighter on our, you know, that's just not as taxing on our brains. That's the ideal time to, uh, to work on the project. But you also have uh, talk about uh, about illness being uh, a factor in this as well. And, and obviously some of the great thinkers and developers have had to deal with some level of illness in their lives at some point. Uh, it may not go to that extent here and now, but understanding that, you know, if you're sick, give yourself a breather. Yeah. You, you don't have to you don't have to kill yourself over this. Yes. Although actually a funny thing, too, is that I found that illness offers constraints. A theme kept coming up is the importance of constraints. Mm -hmm. And for example, I talked to this woman who broke her ankle and she couldn't leave her house. And she got, she wrote the memoirs of, she translated the memoirs of her grandmother in that time. And so illness can do two things. For one thing, it can give a deep meaning to your life and it can be a way to translate pain into something creative and, and beneficial to others that helps others. And, and then it can also um, offer, offer a constraint that will allow you to get something done. With, with all the interviews you did, I mean, you mentioned a couple of them, but were there any ones that, that kind of surprised you with how they tackled their big thing? Uh, well, I guess, you know, I talked to this doctor at the Mayo Clinic who was just incredibly busy, and he... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, was he, he has like four different jobs that he does, and then he also wrote a, a novel, and he writes poetry, and he does all these different things. Well, then I found out his secret, which I, I, I delayed a little bit in the book, but I wrote about it in the sleep chapter, is that he's a short sleeper, and there's a certain percentage of the population that only needs like three to four hours sleep a, a, a night. Aren't they the lucky ones? I they hate can... those people, by the way. <laughs> yeah, but I think a lot of CEOs are actually short sleepers. I think that's part of their secret. And uh, so they can get a lot more done. It's not fair, but there you are. <laughs> 844-942-7866 is the number. We're talking with Phyllis Corky, who is uh, a, a reporter and assignment editor at the New York Times. She's written a book called The Big Thing, How to Complete Your Creative uh, Project, Even If You're a Lazy, Self-Doubting Procrastinator Like Me. Uh, do you have a, a next big thing that, that's kind of on the radar? Or Are you, are you kidding? I'm going to be lazy for the rest of my life. There no. you go. <laughs> rest on my laurels. No, not true. Actually, my next plan, I, in my book, I mentioned uh, National Novel Writing Month. Have you heard of that? No, I had not. No, oh, you haven't. No. I, I, uh, it's, it's where you, uh, it's, it's a program called National Novel Writing Month, and uh, it's been going on, I don't know, quite a while now, maybe 20 years or so, and people get together all around the world, and they write a novel in one month. Wow. And, and that's, if it's 50,000 words, which is what they suggest, that comes out to 1,577 words a day, which is very doable. So I'm going to do that this, uh, this year, that's gonna, in November. That's going to be quite an interesting challenge. Do you have an idea what you want to write about at this point? No, no, not at all. And that's fine, too. <laughs> I'm just going to sit down November 1st and see what comes out. Well, I, I find it interesting that, you know, you, you take this challenge on, that, that the challenge was just for you was to write a book. And, yeah. and, and a part of this, as you said, was playing off an article that you had written in the New York Times, and I guess in some respects just expanding upon it. Exactly, yeah. That was a kind of a funny, funny aspect how that happened, yes. But I realized from 
from the article, I realized I had to create some kind of fake accountability because even though I had a book contract, I my book wasn't due for like a year and some months, yeah. and I, I did procrastinate, and so I had to find what I call fake accountability methods of, of sort of faking a, a, a sense of urgency to get things done. Well, but you also talk about the fact that the experience becomes a, uh, an important part of the process as well. And for you, obviously, you know, you had the deadlines on it, but, but you also want to, I guess, you want to be able to enjoy the experience as you're going through the process. That's very important. And it's not that it's, sometimes it's going to be unpleasant, but that's about the challenge of it. And, but most, most of the time you have to have to really enjoy it for its own sake. I talked to one fellow who he initially wanted to start his own uh, software or invent his own software program, like the founder of Napster. He quit his job to do that. Mm-hmm. And then he, he, but he, and he fantasized about being on the cover of Fast Company magazine. That was his big fantasy. And then, but then he came to realize, oh, my God, I just hate this. I hate doing this. Every morning when I get up, I hate it. Yeah. And uh, so he, he realized he'd rather, he wanted to be a writer. And that's not exactly, a, you know, not everyone becomes as successful as a writer, but he's still doing that because that's what he truly intrinsically enjoys. But pl- probably a lot of this ends up being kind of, uh, personal understanding of the things that you can and can't not do, the things that you like and don't like. I mean, you can you can bring the idea forward as you do in the book, but a lot of this ends up being what each person really has the time for, the understanding for, and uh, really the enjoyment of. Yes, it's an individual process for everybody, and it may be that it's not your time in life. Maybe you aren't at the age to be doing it, and I talk about that for myself and for others, is that, you know, I dreamed of writing a book when I was 11. That's, you know, that's, that's when I started to want to write wow. a book. But, uh, and then in my 20s, I kept thinking, you know, I really should write a book. But the fact is, I didn't have any material. I didn't have an idea. Mm-hmm. And it was for the wrong reason at the time. You know, I think I kind of wanted to be famous or something. And it really wasn't t- now, till I, it wasn't until I was in my 50s, I think, that I had reached the age where I could write this book. And I talked to some wonderfully inspiring people, a man from Jamaica who always wanted to record a reggae album. He said he came out of the womb singing, and, uh, but he joined the military, and he had a bunch of kids, and every, you know, he had a lot of other responsibilities. Well, finally he retired, and he, he went down to Jamaica to Bob Marley's old studio. Mm-hmm. He recorded that album last year at the age of 65. So uh, it's really inspiring how uh, how you can do it later in life. Is, is the potential success that a person has after completing the project, uh, like, uh, you know, you doing the book and obviously doing all the interviews that, that you do about about this book, is the success afterwards, I think in sometimes it can be a negative if that's the only thing that the people focus on in yeah. comparison to thinking about, okay, I need A, B, C, D, and E to be able to get to that point. 
Yes, it's really hard right now for me to, in a way, uh, to deal with the promotion aspect of it, to be kind of wondering what, about the reviews and how well it's going to do, because that really runs counter to why I wrote the book. Yeah. So it's, a hard, yeah. it's kind of hard. This is a hard stage for me to be in, actually, although it's nice to do interviews <laughs> like this where I talk about the substance. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you know, I'm trying to make this as light as, as I possibly can. <laughs> I don't want this to be like hardball or 60 minutes or anything like that. <laughs> Are you going to confront me now with something? No, 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 no. Well, then, you know, what's the business model of the New York Times like? Right? No. Uh, but, but, but I do find it interesting that, you know, you write a book like this and you are in an industry that is, one, it's it, it, being in media, it's high pressure. At, yes. You know, whatever level it, it is. Two, it's in an industry that right now is going through quite an interesting transition. Your yes. your paper itself is yes. going through quite an interesting transition. Yes, so it's how fascinating to be a part of. So how has how has uh, you know doing this really maybe either changed or not changed your thoughts about career? Oh well, that's a nice, that's a good question. Uh, I I mean I love my job, and I, I you know obviously the Times as an institution has to be more concerned about the bottom line than I did about you know, writing this book. And I'm right. thankful to have a job where I work for a company where I can support myself and I'm able to do something like this and actually have it reach others. But it would be nice maybe at some point to move beyond that and, and you know, to full-time authorship. But but for now, it's it's really, it's, it's, it's great b- being in both worlds. Uh, it's been great having you on the show. I greatly appreciate it, Phyllis. Uh, it's a really interesting book, and, and thank, thank you. you for giving us your time today. Uh, and uh, for people that want to pick it up, I, I'm sure that it's uh, not only available in bookstores but on- online as well for them? Yes, it's on Amazon, etc. Okay, great. Thanks, Phyllis. Greatly appreciate your time. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.